0: it is transient how so much of our struggles is just a matter of temporal versus eternal perspective isn't it I mean draw a line around the earth put a dot on it with a pen that's your life isn't even that long in light of eternity and it's all preparation for up there and what precious promises we have All right, if you're not already there, join me again in Matthew 4. That's at least our beginning text. And once again, we're taking a little bit of a break from our normal verse-by-verse exposition, which again is by conviction. We believe that's the best way to teach the whole counsel of God and not leave things out. But sometimes topical emphases are needed. Last week, if you were here, we know we ended... I don't know if I'd call it comical fashion, but it was a little abrupt. I was telling some of you, the Lord has various ways to tell you you're done preaching, and sometimes it's more subtle than others, and last week was not so subtle. Uh, So we are going to try to finish up last week's message. I'm somewhat glad, not that my son got sick, but there was part of that I wanted to develop further, the idea of the priesthood of the believer. Uh, Still not as much as I'd like to say on it, but I wanted to go further into that, so I'm a little bit glad to have uh, maybe the excuse to do so. And again, as we've mentioned multiple times, we're taking uh, several weeks to focus on the subject of biblical evangelism. And I want to emphasize the word biblical. Why is that important? In other words, when somebody's starting place with how they're going to carry out the Lord's work, when it begins with what produces the most results... how does the world think we should carry out things in the church? What what produces the biggest crowd? I guarantee you, if that's your starting point, you're going to depart from biblical methodology very, very quickly. Church growth movement, so-called, really never started on biblical mornings, but it's only gone farther away in the last 60 years. So what we want to be concerned about is what does the Word of God teach by precept and by example Okay, when it comes to reaching men with the gospel. And again, I want to, I want to emphasize this is not a seminar for being some sort of salespeople. Unfortunately, many times, the, if I say we're going to talk about evangelism, depending on where you've been, the idea that comes up is almost like a used car salesman peddling the gospel a manipulator, a forceful personality that overrides people's objections. You, you do not see that in the Bible. So this is not that. It's also not a guilt trip, browbeating. And again, none of those things make us evangelistic. Um, a couple weeks ago, we talked about what is the Great Commission, what exactly it is, and sometimes just part of it's emphasized. But the Great Commission is, is the full cycle. Gospel preaching by people sent to do it, which is all of us if we're Christians, Not everybody's called to preach publicly, but we're all called to communicate the message of Christ. And of course, there's those we go and people are reached. They make them disciples, not just mere professors. But God, let me ask you a question. Is God impressed with some sort of report from whoever that says 4,612 were saved, and one of them shows an actual evidence of a changed life? Is God impressed with that? The answer is no. Let me just preview from what we're going to talk about maybe next week or or the week following. It's been pointed out to me before by some who who want to defend that and say, well, the book of Acts reports numbers. 3,000 were saved at Pentecost. Here's how I would respond to that. Yes, it does. Number one, though, it says about 3,000. It's showing what God's power can do, but it's not interested in bragging about an exact number. Secondly, Acts was written about 30 years after Pentecost when there was sufficient time to prove the reality of what these people uh, latched on to. And thirdly, what was the evidence? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. Uh, you want count, to count that. Count real disciples who join with God's people and prove they're Christians. That's what the Great Commission is. Make disciples. and People are baptized, and of course they go on unto, unto maturity, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Uh, Which is part of what we're doing this morning. So it really takes in that whole scope. Uh, Lord willing, next week, barring another unforeseen ending uh, earlier than I expect, uh, we'll be talking about just biblical methodology. How did the gospel uh, writers, how did the apostles, how did Christ himself deal with people? And I'll tell you in advance, it's very frustrating to me. It's going to be, pray for me if you would this week. Uh, It's frustrating, this topic, because. Condensing it into one message is going to be very difficult. All that we're going to talk about, I'm not promising I'll be able to do that. I want to make it somewhat concise, but there's a lot the scriptures have to say. But we want to again take principles from the Bible of how uh, they dealt with people. And then after that, practicality, how we're going to go forward as a church family in this work. And I'll say it's probably not what you think I'm going to say. So I'll just leave you with that. What again, what we want is a biblical foundation. We don't want to depart from the scriptures. We want to stay within that framework. And we can only expect God's blessing when we stick to what he has said. And uh, what we started talking about last week was kind of the basic question, how can I become more evangelistic? Or how can I cultivate a burden for souls? Where does that come from? Is it taking a class on evangelism? Is it people telling me I need to do it? Is it Uh, Picking myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and making myself do it? Is it putting a time on a calendar and forcing myself to do uh, something? Is it natural charisma? Is it my personality? Are some people just good at it and some people not? And of course, we're examining some of the principles that give answers to that. And I'll just review a little bit of where we were last week to bring us back up to where we stopped. Again, I want to state at the beginning, I'm not negating the fact that the Great Commission is a command. So we're emphasizing one side of this this morning. Uh, the first two words are go ye. That implies obedience to the Lord's command. Am I always going to feel like preaching the gospel? Probably not. Romans 7 says, When I would do good, evil's present with me. And Paul said, I found that. Uh, he says, I find a law. And the word law there means a general principle. In other words, part of the the warfare of the Christian life is understanding the way the flesh works. The minute I step out to obey God, there's usually going to be a corresponding rise of the flesh to try to fight me. And so Paul says, well, all right, I'm going to obey in spite of that. So I'm not negating that. I'm not negating that the spiritual armor, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, we're told to put on. So I'm not saying just hide at home until God zaps you with the lightning bolt of zeal. But what I mean is, how can we cultivate more care for the lost? I think all of us have been to the place. You just sit back rationally and think. Think about the promises of God. And uh, think about the difference the Gospel's made in your life. Think about the percentage of people that are going to hell. Think about what hell is like. And then ask the question, why? Why don't I care more? It's a valid question. By the way, strictly thinking about hell itself won't even fix the problem. That can help. It can help drive you to the source. Well, where we began last time answering that was, explaining again, passages we know, what's God's heart towards perishing men? And that God has an infinitely evangelistic heart. Is God a God of wrath? Yes. Is He a God of burning holiness? Yes. One of the big problems. I guess it's always plagued churches, but you see it today, especially is emphasizing part of God's character to the neglect of the rest. See, the Gospel message actually upholds God's justice and wrath and holiness while pardoning sinners and extending them mercy. Romans 3 makes that so plain. God doesn't bypass His justice to pardon us. Justice has been served. Oh, God is a God of wrath, a God of holiness, a God that will throw men into a lake of fire forever. But that does not mean He smiles when He sends men there. We mentioned several passages. One of my favorite Old Testament verses, As I live, saith the Lord God, Ezekiel 33.1, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from His way and live. See, God's saying all day long have I stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying people. God actually says, I'm reaching and extending myself to rebels. See, Proverbs depicting wisdom and personification. What's wisdom doing? Crying out in the chief places? Crying out to men, not hiding. The Lord says, I haven't spoken in secret in some dark place. If you seek me, you will find me. Both Old and New Testament make that plain. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him. And whosoever means whosoever. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He wept over Jerusalem. That's the heart of God towards lost men. When He departed, He ascended. He sent the Holy Spirit, another Comforter. He said, it's expedient for you. It's good for you that I'm leaving. And he'll, the, the, He, the Spirit, will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then, of course, Paul wrote that God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And Peter, that He's long-suffering to us we are not willing that any should perish. In fact, Peter ties that in in his last epistle to the exact arguments you and I hear today. I mean, what's Peter talking about at the end of that? There's going to be widespread... Rejection of what? The fact there was a global flood and the fact God's going to destroy the world by fire. Are we seeing that today? Oh, man. He predicts the rise of universalism and things just always being, remember? For since the beginning of the creation, all things continue as they were. What is he saying? What we observe is how things have always been. That's what evolution is based on. Men say, Jesus has been talking about coming a long time. Don't MC give up that fairy tale yet. And he says, listen, God's not slack. He didn't fall asleep. He didn't lose his wrath either. He's long-suffering. And one of the great reasons this world has not been incinerated in a fireball yet is that God wants men to be saved. Even the Scriptures end again. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. I love that picture. The door on written revelation is closing. And, and here's the Spirit of God and the, the church. Church is. The saved New Testament believers and they're saying, come, come. If God didn't come after us, nobody would be saved. But what follows from that simple point, And this is one that I fear sometimes is not emphasized enough in evangelism classes. It's only by nearness to that heart of God that zeal can really be reproduced in us. Statistics statistics don't produce zeal. Thinking about hell does not produce zeal. Uh, Emotional appeals themselves don't produce zeal. It's nearness to God. You and I are conduits. No more. We are pipes. It's the best we can be. We began with that passage in uh, Matthew 4, which, uh, by the way, wasn't the first meeting Jesus had with the brothers Andrew and Peter. If you compare John 1... Andrew had been a disciple of John the Baptist. John, the, He was there when John the Baptist points to Christ in the midst of those lambs heading to Jerusalem and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And He goes after him and he spends some time with him and then he first go and findeth his own brother, Simon. Remember Simon? He says, We've, we've found him, the Messiah. And Peter comes to check things out and the Lord looks at him and says, I'm going to change your name to Peter, a rock. Well, this is a different meeting. That was a call to salvation. This is a call to discipleship, to ministry. They already knew who he was. Went back to fishing, and here Jesus walks by and he tells them, Follow me. And they leave their nets, they leave their livelihood. Not everybody's called to do that, they were. And they go after him. And of course, the Lord, what did he say? Follow me. And what will happen? I will make you, fashion you into fishers of men. The Lord didn't say, go fish for men and you'll be my disciples. What, what was the emphasis? Follow me. And as you follow me, I will fashion you into one that catches men. There's really not much difference in that principle. We we mentioned we're not going to turn to these because we were there last week. But John 15, precious passage, verses 1-8 through especially. Upper room. Jesus is about to be crucified. And He tells His disciples, I am the vine and ye are the branches. Just like that branch can't bear anything unless it's attached to that vine, so without me, ye can do nothing. And again, uh, the flesh can build up some humanly impressive institutions. The flesh can produce crowds. The flesh can produce tears. The flesh can produce buildings. The flesh can produce Movements. The flesh can even produce converts, but not real disciples of Christ. I use the word converts loosely. So what's the emphasis? Abide in Me. And as you abide in Me, as you walk in a cultivated, deliberate fellowship with Me, out of that you bear fruit. Would you call it natural when an apple tree grows apples? Well, sure you would. If we looked at that branch and said, why is that growing apples? You'd say, well, it's what it's been made to do. By who? By God. What does that branch have to do to to produce fruit? Really one thing. Stay on the trunk, right? And and so the idea, as we are abiding in Christ, as we're dwelling in Him, walking in fellowship with Him, the natural byproduct of that, out of His belly shall flow rivers of living water as conduits. Trace that passage through. Verse 7 the Word of God, as it saturates our mind, we see more and more answered prayer. The more you think like God, the more you pray as He desires. Verse 8 He wants us to bear much fruit. Listen, if you are in Christ this morning, whatever giftedness you have, whatever your calling and station is, I can tell you this, it is God's desire, and it is quite possible for you to bear much fruit. But the irony is we don't bear fruit by going after fruit. We bear fruit by going after Christ. I said last week, if you take the ninefold fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, let's say list them out and say, all right, I'm going to do these today. How's that go? The point of that passage isn't here mimic these so much as it is, here's what the fruit looks like. Now walk in the Spirit, abide in Christ, and as you do, these will be manifest in increasing measure. That's why they're the fruit of the Spirit. They're the evidence of somebody who's under the control of another with a capital A. Without Him, we can do nothing. I mentioned uh, 1 John 5.3 says, His commandments are not grievous. The Lord's commandments aren't burdensome. And when we find His commandments are a frustrating chore, we find the Christian life is a burdensome, cumbersome annoyance. I guarantee you the problem is not Christianity. The problem is our lack of submission to God. That's why Paul could say, the love of Christ constraineth us. I'm. What, what motivates you, Paul? He didn't say the beatings of God constrain me. The love of Christ constrains me. It's His love for me that has so enraptured my attention that it can't help but come out. Astounding statement Paul makes in Romans 9. And one that I, I can't say. I don't know that anybody here can I won't make that decision for you. What he talks about the continual heaviness in his heart over his kinsmen over the Jews and he actually says if he could somehow be made anathema to God and somehow bear the reproach of hell in order to save them he would do it. How, where does that that comes from the heart of God that's where that comes from flowing through somebody who submitted to him. All right, now the point we ended on, if you and I are saved, there's two offices that we hold with respect to the world around us when it comes to evangelism. Here's what they are. Ambassador and priest. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. In a very literal sense, God is actually speaking through His people to a lost world calling them to Christ. God is pleading with lost people through saved people as though God Himself was personally appealing to them. And we are commissioned to send ones to be God's mouthpieces to a perishing world of men. What about that other office? It's the office of priest. Yes, there are priests today. Not the guys wearing weird-looking collars, smelling incense. Who's the priest today? Every single believer in Jesus Christ is called a priest. Not in the sense of being a mediator between God and men, as though we actually pay something to save them. What's what's the difference between an ambassador and a priest? An ambassador takes God's words before men. A priest takes men's needs before God. Consider some of these passages. Some that we didn't mention last week. The first one we did, the others we did not. Listen to the words that are spoken of Christian people in this church age. But ye, that means every saved person, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Backing up about four verses, same chapter. Ye also, as lively or living stones are built up a spiritual house. Here it is again. And holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we see that this New Testament priesthood, you and I, are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Revelation 1.6, speaking of Jesus, it says, And He hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So you see kind of the main truths concerning the New Testament priesthood given in those a handful of passages. First, all members of the body of Christ are constituted priests. This is not some exalted class of Christians, it's all Christians. But think of some of the terminology. If you are a believer this morning, you are a chosen, chosen generation. Now, that emphasizes, remember, in the Scriptures, the twin towers of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility run side by side and rarely intersect. This is emphasizing one of them. (laughs) I was asking my children this week. We were talking about living conditions in places like Haiti. and I actually have a picture on my phone. It's a little grotesque, but I, I was at the doctor with Elijah and I actually snapped a picture of this National Geographic. I think it was National Geographic. This guy in Haiti, you know what his job is? It's a decent paying job. His job is to clean people's outhouse pits out with his bare hands. That's his job. I mean, I just sat there looking at that. A, I thought, what a sniveling whiner I can be. But I was asking my kids, who, did you pick being born in this country? Did you pick to be born when you were? Did you pick to be born into this home? Did you pick to be born into a home that actually believes the Bible? What percentage of families are like that in this country? No, we didn't pick that. Uh, Did a Levitical priest pick being born a Levite? No, he did not. It was a matter of God's choosing. If you're a Christian, God chose you. And uh, the glorious thing about election, He doesn't tell you why. God didn't pick you because you were smart enough to believe. He didn't pick you because He thought you had some glorious things He wanted to show the world that would make Him look good. He doesn't tell us why. Because He's God and He delights to save people. Well, that doesn't erase the whosoever wills. But by the way, that truth belongs to Christians. It's an assurance truth. Well, think about what that means, though. Just like Aaron and the Old Testament priest, they had to be born into their position. And you're born a priest through the new birth. You've been designated a priest unto God as part of your salvation in Christ. When you were born again, you were born into this priesthood. And then he calls us kings and priests and a royal priesthood. Think about that. I mean, can you use some imagination and picture the throne scenes in the Bible? Isaiah 6, Romans, or Revelation 4 and 5. And then think of the dumpster of iniquity. that you came from, and the alleyway of rebellion that He drug you out of, and actually calls you a king and priest before Him. Friends, last I checked, most of the beggars I've met would happy with a bed to sleep on and a meal. God took these sinful beggars like you and I, clothed us in in royal robes, said, now come boldly, you who are in Christ. Astounding. New Testament priesthood is an office. It's not the same as gifts for service. Uh, Other passages talk about spiritual giftedness, the gifts, and by the way, if you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift. You may not know what it is, but you have one. It's up to you to, to, to find it and develop it. It's part of what the church helps with. Spiritual gifts are given as He will. There's different levels of giftedness. And there's, they, they can't all be the same. But when it comes to this office, we're all on equal footing. It, 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 is, it is my honest opinion. I can't prove it. I don't think there's ever been a so-called great preacher in history without a legion of people who took their priesthood seriously and labored in prayer. <laughs> Some of you have heard the story about Spurgeon. young minister came. He wanted to see the secret of the power behind that ministry. And he said, let's go down to the boiler room. They go downstairs and they open up that, and there's 700 people on their face before God. And he said, do You see that? That's the power behind this ministry. That's why God is shaking England. Spiritual gifts vary greatly, but all of us have the office of a priest if we belong to Christ. How about a holy nation and a holy priesthood? What does that emphasize? How about the necessity of a deliberately holy and separated life? Boy, is that lost today. Prevailing opinion today has looked just as much like the world so that you can win them. Need I remind us, your highest calling is to make God think well, not the world. Last I checked, the world never loved godliness. Woe unto you, the Lord says, when all men speak well of you. Today, it's congratulations when all men speak well of you. Here, sign my latest book and come teach a seminar at our church so we can learn how to ape the devil. A holy priesthood. That priest, when he went to service, where did he go? The first place was that labor. And what did that depict? Before he did anything else, he would wash. It depicted a Ongoing confession, ongoing cleansing from sin, because in that secret and holy place of the Most High, the smallest taint of unconfessed sin cannot be allowed. How about a peculiar people? That doesn't mean weird, (laughs) odd for God. In fact, the word peculiar emphasizes how God looks at us, a precious treasure. But it does, as I understand it, carry the idea of being different. There should be a difference between the child of God and the child of the devil. It amazes me when somebody says, well, you really can't tell who's saved and who's lost. And I wonder what Bible they're reading. How about 1 John 3? In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. What does manifest mean? Clearly seen. Can you always know, infallibly know, but there are marks that follow. And the idea there's no difference between the children of God and of the devil. What a horrific heresy. (sighs) Absolutely untrue. How about lively stones? Living stones? It speaks of individual service. You know, the Great Commission uh, wasn't given to some worldwide conglomeration here. Entity, go preach. It's go ye. Ye as individuals. You, 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 you. And our spiritual giftedness, same thing. It's an individual exercise. And the spiritual New Testament priesthood is not a service given to some priesthood as one gigantic group, but it's an individual ministry made up of living stones taking their role seriously. And he says to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Again, think of the Old Testament priest. What did he do? Well, really two things. He offered sacrifices and he went into the holy of holies, at least the high priest did, to intercede on behalf of others. Offer sacrifices, intercede for others. That was what a priest did day after day. After day. The same with the New Testament priest. We can offer sacrifices in three areas with comparison passages. What well, Romans 12, 1 and 2? What does he say is our reasonable service there? Present your bodies. That's all of you. That's a submission of all of my being to God. So we can sacrifice ourself. It doesn't mean go lay and burn ourselves. It means giving up of our rights to be used. My hands are God's hands. My feet are God's feet. My mind is God's mind. We can give ourselves, our own body. We can give our worship. Hebrews 13.15 Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. So He calls our worship a sacrifice of praise. I mean, you know, when we, uh, we, we sing these songs, you know, one thing that is, it can be. It's like you're taking a gift for your king and you're wrapping it up, you're giving it to him. That's how he looks at it. Well, what else can we sacrifice? Our possessions. Hebrews 13.6, but to do God and to communicate, that means to give of your substance, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Ourselves, our own body, our worship, our possessions, that's our sacrifices as priests. And intercession for others in the holy place. There's so much that can be said on this. We just touched on a few passages last week, showing the connection between prayer and evangelism in the Book of Acts. Again, the coming of the Holy Spirit originally was a one-time event. Uh, you, if you flew to Jerusalem to wait for power on high, you would you would you would be very misguided in that. But what that did emphasize, when the, I mean, think the Lord told them, "Go there, tarry at Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high." I mean, don't they have a a message to tell? Didn't people die? Physical deaths between when Christ went up and when the Holy Spirit came? Yeah, but what what was a major lesson in that? Well, it's what they learned in the upper room. Without me, you can do nothing. Without the Holy Spirit's power, without entire dependence on a heavenly force that you don't possess, namely the Holy Spirit's, Only by that means, by his means, can souls ever be won and God's work really go forward. Look, we can be persuasive. We can have gospel facts memorized. You can have some little presentation that seems utterly faultless. You can secure outward professions of faith. I told you I used to do that. I was pretty proud of myself. I could get people to pray. I'm not going to get off on a side note, but if I wanted to have sloped aisleways, my goal was to get people up here crying, I could do it. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying every invitation's bad, but I am telling you, I'm not interested in mere outward profession or tears. It's changed lives that we're after. Sheer personality can produce a lot of things, but it can't raise the dead. It can't remove satanic blinders. It can't bring an arresting conviction of sin that takes somebody from, oh yeah, I've done some bad things, to is there mercy for me because I'll sink down to hell without it? I mean, what marks the difference between intellectual assent to gospel fact and the type of conviction where there has there's no need for external coercion? Let me read Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer and tell me Paul had to go through his 13-point presentation nodding at all the right times and force the guy to repeat something. If Paul had tried to walk away, the guy had grabbed his robe and drug him to the ground and said, don't go anywhere until you tell me how to be saved. Can God still produce that? Yes, He can. But it's only the Holy Spirit that can produce that. Again, in Acts 1, waiting for that important day, they were in prayer. Acts 2, they continued steadfastly in several things, but one of them was prayer. And In connection with that, fear came upon every soul. There was a prevailing fear of God in the surrounding community which has always marked genuine revival, by the way. Revival is a term you almost start to dislike because it's misused. It's a glorious term. But in periods like the Great Awakening, the prevailing element... Steadfast prayer of God's people an emphasis on a holy life and a fear of God that utterly shattered rebellious hearts. God stepped down through clean conduits. Acts 3 on the way to the prayer meeting, Peter heals the lame man, has the door to preach the Gospel again. Acts 4 after prayer, the building shaken, they speak with boldness. And on and on we could go, but here's the point. Talking to God about men Has got to come before talking to men about God. Now think, there's only three ways you and I can be involved in evangelism. There's prayer, there's individual effort, and there's giving, right? They're going to fit in those categories prayer, individual effort, and giving. There's only so many people that God will allow into your sphere of influence on this terrestrial ball. There's only so much money you can give. But what's the limits of prayer? It's the limits that we put on it. I mean, do you believe the Lord's words? If He asks anything in My name, I will do it. See, here's, there, there's a lot of tragedy with the health, wealth, prosperity trash. But you know what I think is one of the worst? Not only that so many gullible people buy the name it and claim it thing, but it's that God's people recoil from promises like that because they don't want to sound like Joel Osteen. Can I tell you something? Joel Osteen didn't write that verse, he just butchered it. If we pray according to his will, he will do it. So, what does the focus become of having a cleansed mind and a pure heart in fellowship with him to where? I see what I'm asking for lining up with His will as I grow. Let me show you a couple passages quickly in this connection. Uh, Turn to 1 John 5.14. These ought to be very, very important passages when it comes to church ministry among ourselves. Uh, 1 John 5. First John 5 beginning in verse, verse 14. And this is the confidence we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will he heareth us. Again, it's not a blank check. By the way, saying in Jesus name doesn't mean I'm praying in Jesus name. It's not bad to say in Jesus name, but the Bible that was never the intention to say in Jesus name all the time. The idea was according to his character, his mind, his will. If we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we desired of Him. There is an assurance that can grow that God's going to answer what I've asked as I grow in fellowship with Him. Look at verse 16. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death. Now that sin unto death is a long discussion I'm not going to get into. But suffice it to say that this, a Christian person can so harden their heart against God to where he kills them early. But we see a brother go in errant direction. He's sending a sin which is not unto death. Look at verse, look at the middle. He shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. What is that saying? There's a direct connection between our believing prayers as we see brethren going the wrong direction and as we ask, God is willing to give life for those that are not sinning unto death. In other words, God is willing to restore the backslider and the errant professing brother if we're willing to take up our ministry as priests. Let's look at one more. Flip back to the book of James. Say somebody asked the question, do you believe in divine healing? As long as you're talking about James 5, you bet. Not the crusades and the glory going to men. But James 5 is very applicable to the New Testament church. Verse 13, if... Any among you, are any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing songs. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, the specific meaning of that oil, that's, I'm not going to get into the discussion, but the principle is, there are times God is going to heal physical illness through God's people praying. Verse 15, "...and the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he committed sins, they shall be forgiven him." So, here's a case where somebody's actually physically ill because of sin. Does God do that? He does. 1 Corinthians 11, do we always know? No. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much... Now, we're familiar with what it said about Elijah that he was a man of like passions and he prayed and the rain stopped and he prayed and God gave it. But sometimes I think the connection is missed. That is said in a discussion on restoring struggling and errant brethren. It's in that context that he's saying the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What did Elijah do? He was a man who did much to restore an entire backslid nation because he believed God enough to go to Him in prayer. Look at verse 19. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth. Again, it's talking about a a professing Christian. And one convert him. Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. So, in context... Here's someone going astray. Can we respond like Elijah? I don't mean, Lord, make it stop raining. But I mean to intervene in the prayer closet to spare that person from disaster. And look what he says. If you're privileged to do that, you not only save a soul from death, you you can save a Christian person from being cut off early in judgment. And hide a multitude of sins. Think somebody going the wrong way and God stops them through the prayers of another believing brother and they turn around and go the right way. Think of, think of the, the, the grief and, and the damage that would have done to God's name in the community. And you and I have a chance to step in as priests and stop it. Amazing promises. Why are we told to pray for our nation? Friends, the lingering twilight of this country, which is very fast turning its back on God, can be prolonged in the prayer closet of God's people. How about missions? What's the real power behind missions? I had to ask myself this morning, do you pray enough for our missionaries? You know what the answer is? No, I don't. I don't so I send him a check. Well that's that's good. What about the priestly office? That's better. That's better than money. Churches. What can make God shake Helena? It's not the brilliance of my preaching. It's not. It's not our natural personality. (laughs) When it comes to evangelism, what are the two most vital character elements if we would be used of God to bring souls to Him? What are they? Here's what they are. Fellowship with Christ and ongoing, earnest, believing prayer on behalf of men. And without those, nothing we do to reach the world is of any real use. So, God helping me, as we discuss evangelism in this church, that's the foundation. If that's not in place, none of the practical stuff is of much value. Let me just give some closing thoughts. Think about this. Has God's evangelistic heart changed? I mean, has has God's zeal waxed cold? No. (laughs) Has God's power diminished? Is God less powerful? No. Uh, The death of Christ and His resurrection, are they still efficacious to save the souls of men? Is there still room at the cross? Or has God run out of grace? No, He hasn't. I hold in my hands a unique book, It's living. It's powerful. Has the Bible uh, shed some of its power over the centuries? No, it, it hasn't. Is the gospel message still the power of God unto salvation? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit still doing His work of reproving the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Why don't more people come to Christ? Now, I realize that's a complicated question, so I'm going to answer it in a few parts. I realize part of that's the lateness of the hour. (laughs) When the Son of Man comes, shall He find faith in the earth? Friends, biblical Christianity is becoming very, very rare. What Paul warned about in 2 Timothy 3 of this widespread explosion of fake Christianity, America is the epicenter of that. We are spreading phony Christians and fake charlatans who claim to be preachers all over the world. They're legion. God's people have always been a remnant. I get that. And the hour is very late, friends. So part of it is that, the rise of confusion. You Ever look up churches in the Yellow Pages? I don't know that we have Yellow Pages anymore. It's confusing. Okay, that's part of it. Part of it is people do have a choice to reject the light they're given. Again, sovereignty is one side of it. No one's in hell because God didn't come after them. People are in hell because they rejected the light they were given, however much light that was. Some people get one chance, some people get decades of chances. It's not my department. I think of the ministry of Ezekiel. I mean, how would you like to be called? And you know what God actually told Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, look at Ezekiel three, the opening verses. I'm paraphrasing, but the Lord says, "If I sent you to some faraway people of a strange language, they would listen to you. But I'm sending you to the rebellious Jews, and they're not going to listen to you." And for decades, he preaches to that. <laughs> I mean, was the fault in Ezekiel? No. Some of you you remember Paul speaking to Felix in the book of Acts, remember? He's reasoning of judgment, of temperance, and righteousness, and Felix is physically trembling. I mean, the man's right at the gateway of eternal life. Not today. Some of you may have heard of James Gilmore, a fairly well-known name, pioneer missionary to Mongolia, but when he first arrived there, he wrote in his diary, several huts in sight, when shall I be able to speak to the people? O oh Lord, suggest by Thy Spirit how I, how I should come among them and prepare myself to teach the life and love of Christ Jesus. You can just hear the burden on Him. And Years later, in the sunset of his career, here's a line from his journal, in the shape of converts I have seen no results." I have not, as far as I'm aware, seen anyone who even wanted to be a Christian. Those are hard words. You hear the names of Adoniram Judson and William Carey. Oh, they're famous missionaries, but are you aware that both of them labored for seven years before the first convert? We talk about discouragement. David Brainerd died at age 29 of tuberculosis, but he labored among the Native Americans who mocked him incessantly. And it was after his death the real fruit came. Jonathan Edwards. Yes, the preacher of sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's too bad that's all he's known for. But how many of you are aware that after the Great Awakening, after 23 years of ministry, he was fired by a 90% vote by the church because he insisted that only saved people could take communion. I mean, I could go on and on with that. Some people are called to minister in situations like that. I mean, last I checked, Montana is not exactly known for having fertile spiritual soil. The ground's very hard here, spiritually and physically. But. I want to challenge us, though, to ask this question of ourselves: Could more people be reached if God's New Testament priests would take their roles seriously? If we are clogged conduits, we hinder the work of God. See, this is one of the tragedies in the thinking, again, of the church growth movement, where they went off track took surveys, churches are shrinking, less people are coming to Christ. Now, what should we do? Well, the biblical answer, God hasn't changed, Christ hasn't changed, the Holy Spirit hasn't changed, the Bible hasn't changed, the message hasn't changed. Hmm. Maybe we're the problem. Maybe we should examine self and see why God's power won't flow through us, but oh no, they've got a much better idea than that. Let's take surveys and see what Hellians think a church should look like. Do you realize that whole movement is a frank admission that they don't think the Gospel is powerful enough and that the prayer closet doesn't mean anything? Friends, the solution isn't change the methods or change the message or come up with a new kind of preacher who's very heavy on the humor and very light on doctrine. I mean, what hinders our ministry of intercession? I could think of three areas. I mean, can we be biblically ignorant even in this country? Not know the the doorway that's laid before us in prayer? That could be part of it. How about unconfessed sin? No ongoing cleansing. Remember, God resisteth the proud. Can two walk together, Amos is asked, except they be agreed? The effect of unconfessed sin, the effects of that are legion, but one of the greatest is hindered prayer. Never forget this. When you allow unconfessed sin, the Holy Spirit has to go from a ministry through you to a ministry to you. You cease being a conduit and you become a target. By the way, the timing of the communion services in our calendar this year, they're put where they are for a reason. I'll say more about that later. But it has to do with what I'm saying right now. How about unbelief? What kind of prayer healed the sick in James 5? is the prayer of faith. It's, I, I was in my own reading in Matthew this week, and I, I just, this statement always makes me think. And many could be produced like it. But Matthew 13.58, Jesus is in His hometown, and He did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, does God need our prayers? No. Can God work without prayer? Yes. But friends, there are so many things that God will do in answer to prayer that He's not going to do any other way. Matthew 17, the disciples are wondering, Jesus gave us a commission. Why can't we do it? And the Lord says, because of your unbelief. Psalm 78, 41, speaking of Israel, they turned back, they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. What a statement. Our refusal to believe God, it doesn't take away His power, but God has ordained it such that we can hinder His work. By not believing Him. So the only successful ambassadors for Christ are those that take their priesthood seriously. And that can only happen with ongoing cleansing and fellowship with Him. I'm glad you're not the devil, but if you were... Let's say you're looking at a group of serious-minded Christians who actually believe the Scriptures. Where might you aim your missiles? If He can get us to not act like the priests that we are, He's neutralized us. He's neutralized us. If we can carry on our everyday Christian life without taking up the office of priesthood, of intercessor, of the holy place with God, we're not conduits. We can't be. But see, the flip side of that is God is willing to do many, many things in answer to prayer. Conviction of sin. (laughs) Giving deep distress to the errant. I say it to my shame, I don't think I've done it enough, but I'm telling you, I've watched God do that. Here's somebody I love and care for, they're going the wrong way, and I'm begging God in secret. Bury them with the vexation of spirit and make them so miserable they can't tolerate the heat. Yeah. And I'll tell you, is that mean? How should I pray for them? Oh, bless them! Give them a good day in a box of free donuts. Give them a holy misery. Give them a sense of the shame they bring into the name of Christ. Hmm? Friends, New Testament priests pray that way. And God wants to answer. So again, I want to challenge us. What We talk more about evangelism. What's the focus? follow me and i will make you fishers of men let's pray father yes lord we need conviction we need we need to see our errors but i pray you'd give us a A massive sense of the open doorway that you lay before us. Help us to take up our position. We are not deserving. We don't feel deserving. But you call us ambassadors, kings, priests, a chosen generation, living stones. You throw open the door and tell us to come boldly. Lord, you tell us that you are willing desirous to answer prayer. That You are a rewarder of them that diligently seek You. That if our focus is abiding in Christ, we will bring forth much fruit. I pray You'd help us to take a hold of those open doorways. Walk through them. Help us to be used as conduits and all the while make us well aware that's all we are. I pray You'd keep us from taking credit for the least of Your works. We are nothing. But I pray, Lord, in the days ahead, You'd give us the great, great privilege of being used as ambassadors to see rebellious hearts shattered and brought to the cross to see arrogant minds humbled and laid low, to see the self-righteous stripped of every shred of their own merit, to see those erring and walking in fields of sin utterly barricaded off by an inward misery that would bring them like the prodigal to come to their right mind and get out of the hog trough and come back to the Father's house. I pray You'd help us to pray boldly. Let us not give the wicked one the victory in this area. In Jesus' name, Amen.